This is Move to Live More, a podcast series profiling thought leaders in healthcare, health and fitness, and communities. We explore the connection between physical activity and mental and physical health. We address solutions for chronic disease, obesity, and physical inactivity through cross-sector collaboration and innovation. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Amy Bantham, the CEO and founder of Move to Live More, with a mission to help people live healthier, happier, longer, more active lives. This episode is brought to you by Move to Live More, a research and consulting firm integrating healthcare, health and fitness, and communities to address chronic disease and physical inactivity. I'm here today with Karen Mosley and Mary Imboden of the Health Enhancement Research Organization. Karen is president and Mary is the director of research and also a clinical exercise physiologist. Karen and Mary, welcome. Thanks, Amy. Excited to be here with you today. Thank so you. Glad to have you both. The vision for my organization is addressing physical inactivity and chronic disease through cross-sector collaboration and innovation. And I'm curious to hear from you. Can you share with us an example of cross-sector collaboration and innovation, specifically around workplace health and well-being? Anything that's particularly compelling or interesting to you? Yeah, I'll start. First of all, very exciting because my mission and vision seem to align with yours. And so I have a couple examples where we see cross-sector collaboration occurring. And one resource that I will highlight is the work in the addition of um, the art of health promotion, focusing on promoting physical activity in the workplace. And this was uh, published in 2019, I believe. And This special edition actually highlights a number of these um, collaborative efforts. And whether it's resources that they're providing, guidelines or policies, I just really recommend this read. Um, So some things that they focus on include kind of the latest science that lays the foundation for our 2018 fiscal activity guidelines that came out with a specific focus on areas that uh, should be of special interest to employers, as well as um, there's an article there that discusses policy interventions that can be integrated uh, across different work environments. Another initiative discussed is the Prescription for Activity Task Force, which seeks to increase physical activity screening and prescription and provides employers with resources that they can use to get their employees to be more physically active at the work site. We also have the National Academy of Medicine Physical Activity Surveillance Initiative, and this is really interesting work. It's related to physical activity in the workplace, where specifically they've identified the work site sector needing to develop consistent criteria for physical activity, physical fitness, sedentary behavior assessment in worksite health promotion. Some of those policies that we are um, seeing in the worksite related to physical activity include things like encouraging short activity breaks, walking meetings, allowing employees to um, meet for 15 minutes for a movement break throughout the day at a specific location so there's some social connection as well. 
There's also, you know, with the Zoom calls, they could be finishing after 50 minutes to give people 10 minute breaks before their next call. Then the Workplace Health Research Network also has a nice physical activity employer user guide, which I think really nicely lays out why employees should be active. It's the importance of physical activity for the business. So things like productivity and engagement at work. Um, So kind of relating it to those business outcomes so employers can see the benefits. Actually, one that is really interesting, um, the National Academies Workplace is teaming with the Physical Activity Policy Research and Evaluation Network, also known as PEPRIN. And they are uh, actually in the works of developing two um, deliverables that provide a national picture of the physical activity associated with the workplace, as well as a toolkit for employers that can help then measure and assess um, at the individual level physical activity, fitness, and sedentary behavior. And I guess I, I, I need to put a plug in too. Um, I'm not a part of this anymore, but I, I worked with them a couple years back as the CEO pledge. Um, and this is an initiative or a campaign from the National Coalition for Promoting Physical Activity. Um, and basically, they are encouraging every CEO Um, in the U.S. to recognize the importance of physical activity and um, help their employers become more active because of the health benefits and business benefits that they see from it. You highlighted some of my favorites as well, the the CEO pledge during my time at URSA and our involvement with the National Coalition for Promoting Physical Activity, which has become the Physical Activity Alliance, which um, along with other organizations. And so I am involved in their policy work and their work around uh, physical activity prescriptions. You also brought up the Prescription for Activity Task Force and and my doctoral research was around uh, physicians counseling on physical activity and prescribing physical activity and then referring into a community-based setting. So that's what I like about that. It's prescriptions, but it's also connecting across sectors. So I appreciate your highlighting that, that cross-sector collaboration. I just started getting involved with PAPRIN and it's certainly been a clearinghouse of information, bringing together lots of different people researching on different topics and being able to share best practices and share information. And Karen, that seems very much what HERO does so well is to bring together member organizations who they themselves are doing significant amounts of research and then to share that research and share best practices and highlight it and raise the visibility as an organization. Can you tell us more about the mission and vision around HERO, specifically around raising the voices of member organizations? So true. Thanks, Amy. So yes, HERO um, has been around for more than 20 years now, established to bring to light best practices for improving the health of employees and and um, elevating those best practices, sharing the evidence, helping employers to see how to apply the evidence to their workforce. And then about 10 years ago, and, and we're a member organization, our members, the organizations that are members of HERO really are the across the continuum within the health and well-being industry, employers, health plans and systems, universities and colleges, 
and then the providers of the programs, consultants, brokers, and all one big happy hero family. Um, and then about, so about 10 years ago, we, we had expanded the hero vision to include or to emphasize the positive influence that employers can have on the health and well-being of not just their employees, but also families and communities. And so beginning to work through a couple of grants from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on the business case for employers to invest in the health of the communities where they do business and really shining a light on the availability and accessibility of cross-sector collaborations for addressing um, health in the communities, which also thereby impacts the health of the employees at the workplace. Our research is collaborative applied research. We, we include um, so many organizations in our research. We just, Mary was involved. We just finished up a research study on incentives and being able to highlight case studies that then start to inform the research and just to grow that body of evidence is what makes HERO continue to move toward our vision and, and um, what keeps organizations um, coming back to partner with HERO on this really important area. Can we talk a little bit about the expanding vision of the role of the workplace in, in health and well-being? Because looking at your case studies and looking at your research agenda, it's much more than within the four walls of a workplace. And I know that the four walls of a workplace, it was already changing and COVID certainly accelerated that change. So. First, can we talk about the role that the employer plays in the health and well-being of the employees and then the employees within a much broader community and the impact that workplaces have on community and population health? Yeah, so it sounds like you're going towards social determinants of health, Amy, um, which has yeah. been such a buzz phrase. Um, well, Public health has been in social determinants of health space for years. Employers, the last few years, are really um, grasping it. I mean, I can remember working on the grants from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation back in 2014. We weren't talking about social determinants of health. We were talking about the areas within the community where employers could make a difference and where employers should be thinking about because of the direct relation to employee health but we weren't talking about social determinants of health as such. So that has really become front and center um, over the last few years, especially the last eight months or so with COVID. I mean, it's just been startling actually, the data that's coming out about the differences in um, a number of areas that are, are impacting individuals in inequitable ways with regard to COVID and disease. So earlier this year, we released a report on the employer's priority in addressing social determinants of health. And it asked employers to ask the question, is our community thriving, healthy, inspiring, attractive to talent, or is it perceived as deteriorating, sick, and unsafe? And it gives a call to action to identify one thing your organization can do in the next 12 months to address the social determinants impacting your employees, and then it goes on to give you multiple examples of ways that you can do that. And I want to emphasize that while some of the recommendations in the report are easier tasks that can happen within the workplace walls, others depend on cross-sector collaborations within the community. I know you interviewed Dr. Howard Coe recently, one of my favorites in this the culture space, and he mentioned that no one organization can do this alone, and he's absolutely right. 
and the solution is going to look different from one community to the next, depending on what the greatest needs are, whether it's in housing or transportation, food access, financial stability, education. Um, you know, there's a number of ways it can go and, and looking at the data for your particular community can help you identify what the right priority should be. I have lots of examples. I don't want to take a, I could take up the whole hour talking about this because I am so, so passionate about this. But um, one of my, I'll just give you one example. My favorite one is Grayston Bakery. It's a small company located in Yonkers, New York. They supply the brownies for my favorite Ben and Jerry's ice cream, chocolate fudge brownie. And they have an open hiring policy, which means they hire the next person in the door. A couple of things happen when they do this. They're hiring a larger proportion of incarcerated individuals. And they're saving approximately $4,500 per employee in what would typically be recruiting costs for that one hire. So they use that money instead for training and education. And therefore, they're directly addressing the cycles of poverty that impact health status. It's an amazing example. They're getting lots of publicity for it. Uh, the Surgeon General, I know, uses them as a, as a highlight case study himself when he's going around. But I'll stop. If you have follow-up questions, I'm happy to say more about this. Well, I have to add, and I told Howard this recently, the reason that I decided to pursue my doctor of public health at the Chance School is because I heard Howard speak at a HERO conference. And he spoke about his culture of health initiative and research. And I was actually lucky enough to be able to work on that initiative while I was at the Chan School. And I was able to do research around anchor institutions addressing social determinants of health as part of a team working with Howard. So, so it comes full circle. So my interest in social determinants of health is longstanding. It is people are paying much more attention to the fact that what happens outside of the physician's office has so much more impact. It's, I think it's 90% of health outcomes uh, attributed. And so really thinking about ways, touch points, ways that we can intervene around these non-medical determinants to, to improve health outcomes. And, and I was really excited when I saw that Intermountain was one of your case studies I was able to do my doctoral field work with Intermountain working on their social determinants of health initiative, which informed very much my vision around my company, which is connecting healthcare, health and fitness and communities and, and really all those sectors working together to improve people's health outcomes. You talked about culture and I'm so interested in culture and changing culture and creating a culture of health and it's so hard to quantify and measure changes in culture. And, and I'm curious what you've learned through research you've done or research that you've done in partnership with your, with your member organizations about changing culture to, to have those positive impacts on health outcomes. I can start. So we use our HERO scorecard, which has a specific section related to organizational and cultural support. And so it has a number of questions that when you're going through it as a completer, you're able to see, you know, we're not doing this or we are doing that. And it's an education tool in that way that it's helping people open up leadership's eyes to what can we be doing more to support our employees to improve our 
um, health and well-being initiatives. Great. Can you tell us a little bit more about the HEROES scorecard? Sure. Um, it has six different sections, and it goes into things like organizational and cultural support, programs, program integration, measurement and evaluation. It's fairly long, but what it does is it's an educational tool as well as a research tool. So it provides us benchmarking data that we can then use to do research on and then inform our field too. We actually just had a scorecard study that was released this year. We saw that cultural support and leadership support have critical roles in developing these high-performing well-being initiatives. Basically, as an educational tool, completers can go through it and find areas that they're doing well and find areas that they need to improve on. And it's a max score of 200, but most organizations are scoring less than 125. That's kind of the max score we're seeing. And then we are able to break it up for individuals so they can compare themselves by employee size, by industry type, and geographic location. So it gives them a way to also compare themselves to other organizations um, along with the national average. Just a really cool tool to use. Um, version 5, we're going to focus more on social determinants of health uh, as well as culture. I want to dive into a research controversy. It seems as if I'm constantly seeing media coverage around worksite wellness programs and do they have a positive ROI? Are we getting out of them what we are putting into them times a factor of X? And I see really differing things. I feel in my gut that they should have an impact, a positive impact on employee health and well-being. And then I'm seeing, well, actually in the short term, the medium term, the long term, there are, there's differing data. So can we just roll up our sleeves and dive in and have you weigh in on that and what you see in the data and the research? Yeah, I, I also will start on this one, but I would love for Karen to weigh in. And I want to start by saying um, that research on the effectiveness of these workplace health and well-being initiatives really continues to evolve. And every new study, whether it's the results that support health and well-being or don't support it, um, really need to be subjected to a critical eye um, to determine whether it's design, findings, support, the conclusions, and then these media claims as well. So we actually have a position paper that's out on the HERO website that provides a few recommendations on how to really review a research article. And so we have recommendations like making sure the timeline of the study, looking at that and assessing is that is it really long enough to really assess outcomes, um, being skeptical of claims from just one study that might refute the larger body of literature that's out there determine whether the tested intervention represents the best practice approach. And there's more, so I could go on. But I think what you're really asking is us to get into some of those studies that said health and well-being, these initiatives aren't working versus the ones that are. And if I can provide a little bit of a critique on some of the ones that are saying that they aren't. Um, so one uh, that I'll bring up is the BJ's Wholesale Study that came out a few years ago. And while it was a rigorous evaluation, it was really only applied to the first 18 months and was a fairly basic wellness program. And so 
Because of this, the results are not generalizable to best practice approaches combining these comprehensive evidence-based health and well-being initiatives um, with broad organizational, cultural, and leadership support. And this study found that participation in at least one wellness module that lasted up to eight weeks, I believe, did yield significant improvements in physical activity and weight management behaviors, but did not impact these clinical, financial, business outcomes within that 18-month time frame. So a longer follow-up would probably be required to determine if the initial health behavior changes um, amongst pretty small sample of individuals ultimately yielded population-level clinical and financial outcomes. Um, and then we had a recent study that was flip side actually showing health and well-being initiatives do work, was a study that came out in JAMA just this past year. And this study actually represents, uh, again, a rigorous evaluation. It was a randomized control trial of multi-component science-based intervention that actually allowed two years of intervention before even measuring impact. Unlike the BJ's wholesale study, randomization in this study was done at the workplace rather than the individual level which did allow for elements of the workplace environment to be evaluated. And the intervention elements included implementation of health-promoting policies, workplace environmental changes, and we saw things like components like smoking cessation, physical activity, a lot of ones that we know help to improve blood pressure, and that's what the study was mainly looking at was hypertension. And so we did see that this worked. And the key elements that I think stood out to the study was the comprehensive approach, the longer timeline, um, and the individual plans. It sounds like many of the critiques are around the methodologies and the time frame. Am I hearing correctly? Exactly. And those things that we need to be looking at when we are critiquing research and how it's done. Karen, and do you want to weigh in? I would love to. I want to. I want to emphasize some things that Mary um, has said already, which is the importance of a organizational culture that surrounds um, the comprehensiveness of a well-being approach of an organizational culture of health, leadership support, top-down, bottom-up. All of those factors are often missing from some of these studies that are showing less than desirable outcomes. Using the BJ's wholesale example, many would argue that that's a typical workplace wellness program. That's, you know, that would be what you would see in, in most companies when you walk in the door. And if that's the case, Hero's work continues to be needed to elevate the need for the support that needs to, to surround it. I'll also point out um, a study. So Hero, um, at the very beginnings of HERO was established on some foundational research called the HERO-1 study, and it was updated the HERO-2 study. Well, most recently, Getzel et al. have updated it with the HERO-3 study, 10 Modifiable Health Risk Factors and Employees' Medical Cost, and update. It was published this year in the American Journal of Health Promotion, and the conclusion was that employers may achieve cost savings in the short run by implementing comprehensive health promotion programs that focus on decreasing multiple health risks. 
No, I appreciate your weighing in on that. It seems like every other week there's a study on that. So I appreciate your your critiquing the studies that have come out and then uh, showing us how the studies that HERO members do really demonstrate the impact in the much longer time frame. I'd like to, we touched on COVID a little bit. I'd like to come back to it. And Karen, I'm curious from a hero perspective, from a hero member perspective, we're going through a process where we're really imagining and reimagining what workplaces look like. And a key piece of that is reimagining the impact of workplace on employee health and well-being and community health and well-being. And I'm curious about perhaps your member organization's agendas as they move forward with this COVID, post-COVID world. Yeah, thanks. That's that's a big question, Anne. Um, but first, and it probably goes without saying that remote work and leveraging technology in UAs will be the future of work for the foreseeable future. Prior to COVID, at one forecast predicted that 50% of current office space would be obsolete by 2025, and I'm pretty sure that projection could be even higher now. HERO's learning agenda for next year um, sort of highlights the areas that I think are going to be that COVID has brought to light, and it's the harshest way for employers. We'll be focusing on resilience and mental health with our 2021 forum next year. Um, We're going to be looking at allyship, how to be good allies for those who are considered in the out group. I'll highlight a few key areas that COVID really has um, shined a light on. Mental health, social determinants of health, and um, employee policies around parental leave and caregiving. So the COVID pandemic offers a singular teachable moment for employers who are still intent on protecting the health and well-being of their workforce and of their communities. And, you know, business leaders have had to factor in differences in their employed populations by zip code, by health status, by job requirements, essential services, hourly versus salaried. And the short and long-term health of the economy is linked to these social determinants of health. Karen and Mary, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to spend with the Move to Live More podcast listeners today. I'm so grateful. Listeners, I'm here today with Karen Mosley and Miriam Bowden of Hero. Thank you. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Move to Live More podcast series. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out at movetolivemore.com. We'll see you next time.